and the Bible claims to be divinely inspired. From Colossians 4.6, 1 Peter 3.15, believing the Bible is a matter of faith, but it's a matter, not, not a matter of blind faith. It is faith that is built upon credible, cred, credible evidence. Credible evidence. We need to know the reasons why we believe the Bible. 24% Americans believe the Bible is the actual word of God be taken literally. 47% of Americans believe the Bible is inspired by God, but not all of it's be taken literally. 26 believe the Bible's collection of fables, histories, morals, etc. recorded by men. More people believe that man wrote the Bible than people believe that God inspired it and preserved it and we're supposed to take it seriously. Okay. Now, here are the reasons we have to believe the Bible. Some of the reasons we have to believe the Bible, we, we studied last week the continuity of Scripture. You could say the unity of Scripture. We've got 66 books, 40 penmen, three languages, 1,600 years, and, all, and yet it all fits together perfectly and cohesively. That is miraculous and that argues for divine inspiration. That argues for the fact that there is one author, not 40 authors, 40 penmen, 40 secretaries, 40 writers, but one author, one Holy Spirit who inspired the Scripture, the continuity of Scripture. Number two, the endurance of Scripture. Your references were uh, Psalm 119, 89, Psalm 119, 160, uh, Isaiah 40, verse 8, Matthew 24, verse 35. That is the eternality, if that's a word, of Scripture, the eternal nature of the Word of God. Men throughout history have tried to destroy it, but none have been successful, neither will they be. In 300 A.D., uh, the Emperor Diocletian ordered every Bible to be burned. In the 1700s, the French philosopher Voltaire boasted the Bible disappear. When he died, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used it to print Bibles the book that he claimed he was going to eradicate. The 1800s, Robert Ingersoll said in 15 years I'll have this book in the morgue. He died. The Bible lives on. And then the third point, and where we finished, where we left off, was fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Several references we gave you in the book of Isaiah where what sets God apart is he is able to write history in advance. He is able to tell the end of from the beginning. That was Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, then 42, verses 8 and 9, 48, verses 3 through 5, 41, verses 21 through 23. Gave you just a few examples from the Old Testament unfulfilled prophecies, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, really uh, even further on in the book of Daniel, just the history of Gentile empires from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome. It, it, it played out as exactly as Daniel prophesied that it would. How did he know that? He couldn't have known that. Nobody makes accurate prophecies with that much detail uh, except for the Bible. The Bible makes those prophecies because the Bible is written by the God who sees the end from the beginning. Ezekiel 26, that was the destruction of the city of Tyre, and that took place just as the Bible had said. Uh, many other uh, similar evidences. We'll get into a little more of those when we study archaeology next week. And then Isaiah 44 and 45, this was incredible. Cyrus, the king of Persia, is named as the ruler who would send the Jews back to Jerusalem and this is between one and 200 years before he was born and ascended to the throne. Now, 
Just for comparison, how would you like today to name who the president will be 100 years from now? It would be impossible. It would be preposterous. Nobody could hope to do that. You might just guess a name like Johnson or Smith or Jones and have some sort of a crack at it. But you've got to give the first name and you've got to give some details about what he'll do. That's what the Bible does. And the fulfilled prophecies argue for the divine inspiration of Scripture. Someone calculated that 27% of the Bible was prophetic at the time it was written. And then what we're going to begin to look at today, Bible students have identified 351 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ at His first coming. 351 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ at His first coming. And what we're going to try to do is cover all 351 this morning. So strap in. I'm just kidding. Let me just read this to you and, uh, and just, 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 just follow along with it. Think about it. Um, how about the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ? The greatest fulfillments of prophecy in the Scripture are found... At the first advent of the Son of God. It, would, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Here's just a few examples. In your notes, in your outline, I gave you a couple of links that you could look up. Um, Chick Publications has some great charts in a couple of their tracks. The, the track, Creator or Liar, and then the track, Who Is He? And then there's, there's a place you can just search for Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ. There'll be several places online. You can download a document or you can look right on the website and it'll list all 300 51. Here's just a summary. Think about this. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would be born of the seed of Abraham, that he would be of the seed of Jesse, that he would be of the seed of David. The genealogies, Matthew and Luke, uh, bear those out. He would be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Great persons would come to adore him. That was prophesied in the book of Psalms. There would be killing of children in Bethlehem. That was prophesied in Jeremiah. He would be called out of Egypt. That was in Hosea. He'd be preceded by a forerunner. Book of Malachi, book of Isaiah. He would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 61. He'd be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 15. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. He would enter into his public ministry in Galilee. He would be entering publicly in Jerusalem and come into the temple, Zechariah. He would live in poverty and meekness and tenderness and compassion. He would be without deceit. He would be full of zeal. He would preach with parables. He would work miracles. He would bear reproach. He would be rejected by his own Jewish brethren. The Jews and Gentiles combined together would be against him. He'd be betrayed by a friend, book of Psalms. His disciples would forsake him. He'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah. That price would be given for a potter's field, Jeremiah. He would die with intense suffering, Isaiah 53, yet be silent under that suffering. He'd be struck on the cheek, his his visage marred, Isaiah 52, 53. He'd be spit upon and scarred. His hands and feet would be pierced and nailed to a cross. He'd be forsaken by God, Psalm 22, and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very words he said, during his hour of crucifixion, all prophesied. He would be mocked. Gall and vinegar would be offered. His garments would be parted. Lots would be cast for his clothing. He'd be numbered among the transgressors. He would intercede for his murderers. He would die, but not a bone of his body be broken. He'd be pierced long before crucifixion was ever invented. 
the means of his death was prophesied before that means of death was ever used by anybody. He'd be buried with the rich. His flesh would not see corruption. He would be raised from the dead and ascend back to the right hand of God the Father. 351 particulars about his birth, about his life, about his ministry, about his death, about his resurrection. All fulfilled. When Christ was on the cross, it was that the scriptures might be fulfilled that he said, I thirst. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. And all the way from the law and the Psalms and the prophets, they all spoke of the one who was coming and what he would do and what he would accomplish. And it's amazing the incredible accuracy of the pre-recorded history regarding the Son of God. Now, all of this is recorded hundreds of years before Jesus even entered the world. The last Old Testament book, Malachi, 400 years before the events in the New Testament take place. Many of these prophecies, listen to this. This might be the next blank on your sheet. Many of these prophecies were fulfilled not by his friends, but by his enemies. Many of these prophecies were fulfilled by his enemies who stood to lose the most with their fulfillment. This was not a conspiracy. This was not some Jewish plan. Many of the prophecies, the people who had a hand in fulfilling them were people who would not want the Scriptures verified. The Romans, the Pharisees, the people who had Jesus executed, they were not in a plot to prove the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures to be true. They were trying to destroy Jesus Christ, not validate His person and His ministry. And so the fact that the, His enemies had such a large hand in fulfilling those prophecies speaks to the divine inspiration of those prophecies. It is true that many of the prophecies, the fulfillment is recorded mainly in the Bible and not other secular sources. For that reason, people reject the fulfillment of the prophecies uh, that, uh, of Jesus Christ at His first coming. Well, because the Bible makes the prophecy and then the Bible records the fulfillment of the prophecy. However, however, there is no evidence that anybody has produced for any type of collusion on the part of the New Testament writers. It's not like they had this great understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures and they laid these things out on purpose and made sure they went through all the prophecies and lined up all the prophecies when they wrote their Gospels. There's no collusion. There's no conspiracy. And beyond that, there are at least five different non-Christian sources that provide evidence for or attest to the historicity of Jesus, the fact that he was a real person, events, mentions of his name, events surrounding his life, what he did, they're not only mentioned in the scripture. There are other secular historians who give credence to the fact that, yes, Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. Now, anybody else in history with that kind of evidence, it is, it is, it is unquestionably received and accepted yes that person did exist and yet Jesus Christ even with these historical references people just ignore it deny it pretend like it isn't real let me give you the five names 
of the secular historians historians who make reference to Jesus Christ. Uh, Tacitus, or Tacitus, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. It's T-A-C-I-T-U-S. You think I would have looked that up, and I probably thought about it. Just never did it. Wishing I had. Now, T-A-C-I-T-U-S. He was a Roman historian. And in his writings, you find mention of Jesus Christ. Pliny the Younger. P-L-I-N. Why? You don't like your name? (laughs) Pliny. Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman governor. He records reference to Jesus Christ. Then there's Josephus, probably the most well-known. Josephus. J-O-S-E-P-H-U-S. If you do not yet have a nickname for Joey, that one would probably work pretty well. Yes, Elise. J, you write slow. J O S E P H U S. Josephus, the Jewish historian, antiquities of the Jews. The Babylonian Talmud. This isn't an author, this is the name of a book. The Babylonian Talmud. I'm not helping you with Babylonian or Talmud. Figure those out for yourself. If you can't, 1-800-A-B-C-D-E-F-G. Hooked on phonics. Worked for me. Babylonian Talmud. That is a collection of writings by Jewish rabbis. Again, these people weren't necessarily on Jesus' side. The Jewish rabbis, those were, a lot of those guys were Pharisees. They were very much opposed to personal work of Jesus Christ. But the Babylonian Talmud uh, mentions... His name and his existence. Then there's Lucian, L U C I A N, L U C I A N. He was a Greek writer of satire. He was a Greek, how would you say that? Satirist, 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 satirist. Yeah, he wrote the Greek Babylonian B. The Babylon Bee, not Babylonian Bee. Babylonian Talmud, Babylon Bee. How many of you read the Babylon Bee? Okay. If, if you understand what satire is, then you should read the Babylon, Babylon Bee because it's very entertaining. All right, so Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, Babylonian Talmud, Lucian, all make reference to Jesus Christ. So the fulfilled prophecy, one of the strongest evidences of the inspiration of Scripture, the fact that God gave us this book. Open your Bible with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's, let's actually read some Scripture in our Sunday school lesson this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 20. Point number 4. Point number 4, scientific accuracy. Point number 4, scientific accuracy. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 20. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 20. Paul is closing out this first epistle to the young pastor, and the Holy Spirit has him say this. O Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings. Here are some things to stay away from. Avoiding 
vain, profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Okay? This is not a new development in our world today. It, it maybe has escalated since the 1850s and Darwin's Origin of Species, but there has always been so-called science that men have used to stand in opposition to the Word of God. And Timothy was instructed by Paul through the Holy Spirit, oppose those oppositions of so-called science. Okay? And there's probably been nothing more in our day to destroy the credibility of the Bible and the minds of men than the so-called scientific theory of evolution. But it's very important. The Bible is not opposed to science. Science is not opposed to the Bible. The Word of the Lord is right. Doesn't matter what the topic is. Doesn't matter what's under discussion. It doesn't matter what the Lord is speaking to. When God says anything, what He says is true. And the God who wrote the Bible is the God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who wrote the Scripture is the God who ordained the laws that govern his creation. So the Bible and science, they are in perfect harmony. The Bible and science, they are in perfect agreement. We're going to study many facts, scientific facts stated in the Word of God long before modern scientists ever discovered them. How could the men who wrote down these words have had that knowledge and insight when nobody else in the world had that knowledge and insight at that time? had not God inspired them to write down what they wrote. But what we have to be very careful to realize and, and try to work to be able to communicate and articulate is the fact that when people prop up evolution as proof that the Bible is not true, they're propping up a theory, a belief. Evolution is not science. Those, those two words are used Together so often that everybody just assumes that evolution is fact because scientists call it science. But what science is, is knowledge that is gained by observation and experimentation. And nobody has ever in the history of the world observed one species becoming another species, and nobody has ever done an experiment to provide any proof that one species could ever turn into anything than another species. Well, we dug up these bones. You know what bones tell you? Something died. And you have to use your imagination for the rest. Okay? Darwin, the one who came up with all this, or the one who popularized all this, he said that there would be thousands of transitional forms, missing links. If we're going from bird to dinosaur, from dinosaur to bird, whichever way it worked, there would be steps along the way preserved in the fossil record. You know what the fossil record actually uh, evidences? A great catastrophe. Mass, instantaneous burial of lots of stuff that got dead and compressed and fossilized. I know that wasn't grammatically correct, but sometimes there's a little more emphasis when you break the rules of grammar. The stuff got dead. Okay? So evolution is not science. Evolution is a religious belief. You have to receive that by faith. Just as much as you have to receive creation by faith, there is good evidence for a creator. Okay?
Okay? Now, so the Bible and science, they're not in opposition. The Bible and science are in perfect harmony. Let me, let me give you a list. We'll, we'll finish with this. A list of truths that are stated way back, I think all of these, almost all of them, not every single one, almost all of these are in the Old Testament, before Christ, at least 400 years before Christ was even born. And yet many of these things were just uncovered, discovered, 1800s, 1900s. Science is catching up with the Bible. Not the other way around, okay? Job 26, 7 says this, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth on nothing. So Job 26, 7 says, The earth hangs on nothing. You know what the ancients believed? Atlas held it up on his shoulders. There were these turtles, and the, the, the earth rested on its shells. The earth is flat, supported by four pillars. That, that idea is coming back around, but it's still just as absurd. Okay? The earth hangs on nothing. That, that really references the law of gravity. Okay? That's written in the Bible. Oldest book of the Bible, Job 26.7. Isaiah 40.22 says this. It is he, speaking of God, that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The inhabitants are his grasshoppers, stretched out the heavens as a curtain, spreadeth them out as tents dwelling. So the, the earth is spherical. The earth is spherical. The earth is not flat. Isaiah knew that. And it, it took Galileo to convince everybody. Well over a thousand years later. Okay? So the earth is flat. Columbus didn't have to worry about going off the edge. There's this great big ice sheet. <laughs> no, that's not why. Because it's, it's actually a circle. You can get east by going west. It just takes a lot longer than he thought it would. Alright, Luke 17, 34 through 36 says this, I tell you, in that night, speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ, actually his second advent, uh, when he comes to the earth, in that night there should be two men in one bed, the one should be taken, the other left, two women should be grinding together, the one should be taken, the other left, two men should be in the field, the one should be taken, and the other left. At the time that Jesus Christ returns, it's nighttime in some parts of the world, and daytime in other parts of the world, night and day, at the same time. This is a reference to the rotation of the earth or the fact that the earth revolves. That the earth is spinning on an axis and rotating around the sun. That is alluded to in Luke 17, 34 through 36. Job 25, 5 says this, Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. Scientific fact in the Bible, the moon reflects sunlight. The moon does not shine on its own. It does not have light. It does not produce light. It reflects the light of the sun. It is called in Psalm 89:37 a faithful witness. It's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to, we don't have any light of our own. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, but we're to let that light shine before men. That may see your good works, glorify the Father in heaven. Okay, Acts 17. Wait, Genesis 22, 17. I don't, I don't know how I jumped all the way down to Acts 17. Genesis 22, 17 says this. And I, I, might, I may have given you the wrong reference there. Jot down Genesis 15, 5 out beside that because I'm not sure which one of those is right or if they're both right. 
God brought Abraham forth and said, Look now toward heaven, tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. Jeremiah 33, 22, the host of heaven cannot be numbered. So stars are innumerable. The stars are innumerable. Different people in history have tried to count them. They can't be counted. There are, if, if, if you get a strong telescope and put it in the black spaces in the sky, it's just going to show you more and more and more stars. The stars are innumerable. That's in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 41. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another in glory. Stars differ in glory. They, many of them look about the same. Just the naked eye in the night sky. But you get a telescope on the thing. Some are huge, some are bright. More so than others. Stars differ in glory. Astronomical facts in the Bible. Jeremiah 31, 35 and Psalm 19, 6 say that stars follow a predictable pattern. Stars follow a predictable pattern. If you study the constellations, which I haven't, but it would be fascinating, they... They move throughout the year. They, 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 they move with the season. Psalm 19 says that his circuit is under the ends of it. Jeremiah 31, 35, The Lord give the sun for light by day, ordinance the moon and stars for light by night, divided the uh, sea when the waves thereof roar. So the stars following a pattern, that's alluded to in Scripture. First Chronicles 1, 19. This one's interesting. Unto Eber born two sons, named the one was Peleg, because in his days the earth was divided. They tell us the continents used to be all together, and then they broke apart and separated. Continental drift, they call it. It's recorded way back in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Continental drift. And then Solomon was aware of some meteorological facts. Only much later uncovered. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 6. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about to the north. It whirleth about continually. The wind returneth again according to his circuits. And if you remember studying the jet stream in science class, Solomon gave a pretty apt description of it right there in Ecclesiastes 1 6. How? Because God inspired the scripture and God created the jet stream. And he knows exactly how it works. Ecclesiastes 1.6, the jet stream. Ecclesiastes 1.7, the water cycle. Remember that project in elementary school or middle school, whenever you did it? If you're homeschooled, you don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. The water cycle. Ecclesiastes 1.7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full under the place from whence the rivers come. Thither they return again. Just makes that continual loop and it, there are other references but Ecclesiastes 1 7 is one we gave you. Okay, Jonah 2 speaks of mountains under the ocean. Oceanic mountain ranges. In Jonah 2 6 he says, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Psalm 8 8 Ocean Currents Ocean currents. Matthew Mari read this verse of scripture and then set out to chart the paths of the seas, referenced by David in Psalm 88. He became the father of modern oceanography. Job 38:16. Ocean springs. Did you know there are springs 
in the ocean. Scientists didn't discover that for a long, long time. But Job 38, 16, hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? Job 9, 8, Zechariah 12, 1, other scriptures speak to an expanding universe. This is, this is the great evidence of the Big Bang, the fact that you know, the, the universe is expanding. Well, actually, that's just something that the Bible says. God stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain. Okay? So an expanding universe. Genesis 2, I, I said 9, it's 2-7. Sorry about that. Genesis 2-7. I was just going to see if you were paying attention. Bodies from dust. Uh, all the elements in the human body, all the same elements in dirt. You know why? You are nothing more than a great, big, complicated dirt ball. Okay, that's... That's that's scientific fact and scripture fact. Acts 17, 26, God made of one blood all nations of men. Genesis 3, 20, Eve's the mother of all living. There is one human race. One human race. Okay? And DNA uh, testing has confirmed all this stuff. We're all just a different shade of brown. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, brown and brown and brown and brown. Okay? Okay? So one human race, that's, that's Bible. Life in the blood, Leviticus 17, 11. Oh, if George Washington's doctors had only known this. You got, if, if you had infle- infection, they used to give you leeches. Wouldn't that be a pleasant Experience. Oh, I'm going to be better now. I've got leeches. <laughs> or they would slit your wrists and drain your blood because the reason you had an infection because your blood was bad. And somehow draining the blood was going to help you live. Actually, it made you die. That's what happened to George Washington. Because life is in the blood. Leviticus 17, 11. Eighth day circumcision, Genesis 17, 12. Why did God tell Abraham? To circumcise on the eighth day. Well, unknown to Abraham, but known to modern scientists, is that's the day with the highest concentration levels of vitamin K, the blood clotting agent. Eighth day is the best day for circumcision. That's all the way back in Genesis 17. 17. Germ theory. Germ theory, or you could just say sanitation. Leviticus 15, under Levitical law, God instructed that things be washed in running water. Water. Doctors used to carry around a basin or a bowl of water and wash their hands in the same bowl of water all day long and wonder why people all got infected and died. You need to, run, you need to wash in running water. Uh, Leviticus could help them with that. The danger of immorality. The danger of immorality. STDs. They call them social Diseases. It's just that's just trying to say it really, really nicely. First Corinthians says, "You commit fornication, you sin against your own body. You're going to hurt yourself." Romans one says, "There are some who are so perverted they receive in themselves the recompense of their error, which was meat." They call it AIDS today. They called it GRIDS before gay-related immunity deficiency. Syndrome. You you violate God's word, you're gonna harm yourself. And that is that's that's fact, scientific fact. 
That's alluded to in Scripture. The laws of nature, Psalm 119.91. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy service. The laws of nature argue for the existence of God. Who, who, who established the laws? The Bible says God did. Here are a couple of those laws. Genesis 2, 1 and 2. The first law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics. Matter and or energy cannot be created or destroyed. Genesis 2, when God finished everything, then he rested the seventh day from the work which he had made. The second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Everything tends toward disorder. 1800s, when that law is, uh, is, is understood. But Psalm 102 says, The heavens whacked old like a garment. They shall perish. Entropy. Thou shalt endure. As vesture shalt thou change them, they shall be changed. And then here, here are very interesting verses from the book of Job. Job 38, 19. Where is the way where light dwelleth? Light has a path or light travels. Light travels. Job he didn't know that, but God knew that, and God's the one who inspired that book. Light has a path. Job 38, 24. By what way is the light parted? You, know, you, you can part light. You can break it down into the colors of the rainbow. Light can be parted. Well, that was written way, 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 way back. Oldest book in the Bible. And then Job 38, 20, 35. Light can carry sound. Electromagnetism, they call that. Light can carry sound. Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, Here we are. Now, the light travels fast. You see, you see the lightning, you hear the thunder, but lightning matches. That's all in the Bible. Scientific facts. The Bible does not oppose science, science does not oppose the Bible. The two are in perfect harmony and agreement. Because the God who wrote it is the God who created and established all those laws. Next time we'll finish up the study of reasons to believe the Bible with two more considerations, archaeological evidences and the personal experience.